Hello and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the place for military history geeks like you and I. This podcast is all about retrieving great stories of daring do and fascinating characters from the dustbin of history. People like Sir Hugh Goff, the man at the centre of today's episode. In fact, the next three episodes will take a deep dive into Goff's extraordinary life and career. A career that straddled the late Georgian and early Victorian periods and saw him fight in multiple wars from the peninsula to the Anglo-Sikh wars. If you enjoy the podcast, then please like and subscribe as it would be great if we could continue to grow and to spread these brilliant stories. Also, please consider signing up for my monthly dispatch mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. When you sign up, you'll receive a free ebook all about the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. Today's guest is Dr. Christopher Bryce, a fellow Leicester lad and also an editor over at Helion Books. He's written a number of his own books, including one on Sir Hugh Goff. It's called Brave as a Lion, and if you buy via helion.co.uk, you can receive a 20% discount by including the code LION, L-I-O-N, 2020 at checkout. In today's episode, we're focusing on Goff's early life, especially his leadership during the Peninsular War of 1808-1814. Chris even claims that Goff was the best battalion commander in the entire Allied army. Let's hear more. Well, he's, he's, a, he's an Irishman, uh, he's from uh, Limerick, and he's part of an old Anglo-Irish family. Um, to anyone who studies British military history, the name Goff will be well known for, for any number of uh, members of that family. Um, he is part of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, but perhaps one of the more liberal elements of it. Um, there's no great reports of either his father, uh, George Goff, or Hugh Goff being hugely unpopular uh, in the way that many Anglo-Irish landlords were. For anyone who doesn't know, especially if maybe they're listening outside the UK, by Anglo-Irish, we generally mean these were people who were born in Ireland, but of English stock, and they're generally Protestant. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, the, the Protestant thing's a bit more complicated because they're not all necessarily um but yes really we mean the um people of, of Brit british mostly english stock who have lived in ireland for generations i mean the goths went back many many centuries um in ireland um before hugh goff came around and his father george goff was quite a prominent uh, landowner but also a, um i suppose the best way of saying it is he was sort of like a military magistrate he had the roles of magistrate but he was also the colonel of the local militia as well um and that's actually how goff gets his first uh taste of the military life at uh, the age of just 13. um he's uh, given an officership within the limerick militia commanded by his father um which was not you know it sounds strange for a 13 year old to be uh an army officer but not in those days that wasn't uncommon at all really they were developed for it this was their path you know there was an expectation that you would take command you know you were the local landowner you had responsibilities and these in many cases also particularly in ireland uh concerned leading the local militia um <clears throat> you know we're talking about 
this period, we're talking about the late uh, 18th century, which is a difficult time in Ireland. There's any number of uh, rebellions and uh, problems, difficulties, etc. And the militia play a fairly prominent part, particularly during the um, what's generally known as the French Revolutionary Wars or the Napoleonic Wars. Um, there's a lot of attempts with the French to land. In fact, there is a famous uh, landing by the French in Ireland. And uh, Hugh Goff's father, George Goff, Colonel George Goff, is actually one of the militia commanders who's sent out to fight the um, the French. And actually, they're, they're quite decisively beaten, but the French don't push on because they believe they were just the vanguard of an advancing British force. And they believe there must be more because they didn't expect 800 militia or so to suddenly attack an entire French army. Um, so they believed it was just the advance guard, and so they didn't push their advance. So although the British militia were defeated, um, it was, I suppose, it was a, a tactical defeat, but a strategic victory. Um, and was, was, was Hugh himself present? Not then, no. No, it's a bit later on um, that he, he sort of takes on on that position. And he's not actually in the militia for very long at all. Um, by seven, I mean, he joins the militia in 1793. By 1794, I think it's August, he's actually commissioned into the regular army. Um, so still only 14, 15, you know, he's been commissioned into the regular army. Uh, obviously this is the period of the Napoleonic Wars where there's a great demand for uh, officers, there are, are newly raised regiments, and in fact, he joins the, um, the 119th Regiment of Foot, um, which is one of those that's been fairly recently raised to, to add new uh, battalions and regiments to the British Army. But he doesn't stay with them for very long either. I mean, the only real interesting thing about his time with the 119th is when he is uh, appointed their adjutant, you know, 14, 15 years old. Is the adjutant of the battalion, um, which is is quite remarkable. I mean, I'm I'm guessing, I might be wrong, but I'm guessing he got the job because nobody else wanted it. Uh, it wasn't always the most popular of, uh, of tasks, but it is quite remarkable for a 15 year old to be the adjutant of a, of a battalion. Um, but he doesn't stay with with the 119th long. He's transferred to the um, let me just check 78 78th foot. Uh, which is a Highland Regiment. And it's with the 78th that he sees his first real action. And that's in the uh, the first taking of Cape Town. Um, as he's part of that force, he's there at the Battle of, uh, of, of Cape Town. He also actually, we're fairly certain, we can't tell for sure, but it's suggested uh, that he actually takes part or is present at the naval battle of uh, Saldana Bay, um, where the Dutch attempting to relieve, uh, Dutch and French fleet attempting to relieve the Cape is defeated uh, by a, a superior Royal Navy force who, who basically keep, catch them unawares. They, they catch them at um, in, in harbour in Saldana Bay, uh, the British block it off um, and blast them out of the water you know, whilst they're at, at anchor. Uh, and just, just for a bit of background, I guess, for anyone who's not aware of this campaign, at that point, South Africa was, was uh, a Dutch colony. And so the, it, and, and the Dutch were allied with the French. So the British were trying to, 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 uh, to block the French having access to that part of the sea, presumably. 
Yes, I mean, the the Cape, I think what we have to remember this is the days long before the Suez Canal. So the Cape is an important stopping point, uh, victualling, refueling, whatever you want to say, on the way to uh, India. Uh, British India is increasingly important and there is some conflict going on in British India during the Napoleonic French Revolutionary Wars. Um, now, there's a slight confusing element to this in that the, uh, the Dutch East India Company actually controlled the Cape. Technically, their charter comes from the Dutch state that is in exile in London, but they can't avoid the reality that the Batavian Republic is in power in the Netherlands, where their, you know, their main base of operations is. There's a so, lot of parallels here with the Vichy French in World War II, it sounds like. There is to an extent. Um, you know, the, the Dutch East India Company can't avoid the realities, although really, it, technically, it has no authority from the Batavian Republic. Its authority comes from the Dutch monarchy or the Dutch you know, re Republic, which is in, um, in London, in exile. Um, so it, it's, it's a tricky situation uh, for them. And in the end, the British decide, look, they've got to do something about this. It, it is a threat, particularly, say, if a French or Dutch naval force uh, operating from Cape Town starts raiding British shipping on its way to India, um, you know, the vital sea link. So they send a, a, an expedition. Um, it's a fairly minor one to begin with, but more and more forces are diverted to it. Um, and it becomes a fairly major operation. Um, the Dutch uh, put up a fairly strong resistance in Cape Town, but uh, they're eventually overwhelmed. Um, and until the uh, Peace of Amiens, uh, the Dutch um, are forced out of South Africa and it becomes British controlled. Obviously, then when war commences again after the peace is over, um, there's a second campaign to recapture the, the Cape from the Dutch. Um, and after that period, obviously, as you, you, you well know, it's never returned to the Dutch and it becomes a British colony and it's developed over the, over the centuries. Century, I suppose. And what do we know about uh, Hugh Goff's time during that campaign? Do we, do we have many sources about what he got up to? We have some. We don't have a huge amount. Um, there is a slight problem in that a lot of his private papers were held at the house of his son-in-law, Patrick Grant, and they were destroyed in a fire. Oh. Um, we do have, there is still a fair amount of stuff out there, but it tends to be from the later period. So piecing together the early stuff is, is really sort of going through regimental histories, a few family letters that exist, um, some of the work that was done by uh, Hugo's first biographer, Sir Robert Wright. And of course, Sir Robert Wright had a great advantage I didn't in that he could talk to people who had actually known Goff um, and, and had served with him, etc. Um, you know, I didn't have that luxury. Um, so there's, there's stuff from Robert Wright, which is, is, can be taken as being fairly accurate because it comes from people who knew Goff and were there or around that situation. Um, we do know that uh, he 
while still in South Africa, he actually transfers from the 78th to the 87th. And the 87th foot, uh, better known as the Royal Irish Fusiliers in later years, um, are probably a regiment more to his liking. I mean, it's an Irish regiment, obviously, which probably uh, says something about that. But also, this is a regiment that's going to see fairly serious active service. Uh, the 78th, though obviously they're in Cape Town, but that's probably going to be the end, to a large extent, of their service during the conflict, because they're off to garrison in India. And obviously, while there is fighting going on in India, it's far, it, you know, it's a backwater. Mm. Um, the 87th are going to take part in any major European conflict. They're earmarked for that. So being in the 87th is, is something important for him. Um, but his first period of time, really, you know, with the 87th, is in uh, the Caribbean. Um, and he's there at the taking of Trinidad. He's there in the battles for Puerto Rico, um, the Dutch colonies in South Africa, uh, South America, sorry, when they're taken. By Suriname. Suriname, yes. Um, you know, he, he, he plays a fairly active part in that for a couple of years, for a few years. And then he returns to, um, to England and he has a period where he's in uh, garrison with the uh, 87th uh, in Guernsey, actually, um, because uh, Doyle, the um, colonel of the regiment, is also the governor of Guernsey and so his battalion's there. And this is a period of the battalion sort of because uh, they'd had very heavy losses during the, the Flanders campaign. And so they'd had to build up their, their troops again, the troop numbers, and they'd lost almost the entire battalion in Flanders, most of them taken prisoner or killed. Yeah, 1795, um, the regiment had been stationed at uh, bergen op Zoom, uh, and they're there when the Dutch changed sides. So they're rather caught uh, unawares, they're surrounded, um, there, there is some fighting going on, but by and large, they're, they're all taken prisoner. Uh, eventually, a, a great number of them are exchanged. Um, and Doyle, actually, um, Sir John Doyle, plays a very important part, not only in getting them back, but also that making sure that in the time in between, the families are taken care of. Um, he's, a, he's a good, benevolent, regimental colonel. Uh, which I think is a good, strong influence on Goff. Um, Goff was exactly the same. Um, and it's probably, you know, he learnt a lot from Doyle, no doubt. Um, and before we move on, Chris, can I just ask yeah. about his time in the West Indies? Because obviously it was a very traumatic period for the British Army, that campaign in the West Indies. I think casualty rates from disease were often over 50%. Were staggering. Um, they're absolutely staggering. I mean, more men were lost through disease in the West Indies than through the entire Peninsula campaign. Yeah, yeah, that, that is a staggering uh, statistic. Um, it was one of those areas where if you were there for any length of time, uh, the, the likelihood of you getting home in, in anywhere near resembling good health was slim to remote. Um, Goff does seem to have had a little bit of illness. And there's this a period there's a period between him leaving the Caribbean and when we actually have record of him turning up uh, in Britain again of probably about 
two to three years where we don't really know much about him. We don't really know what happens. Um, there is a suggestion that he has an illness, which takes him a, a period of time to recover from. Uh, but we know very little. Uh, we don't even really know why he left the West Indies. It may simply be that he was, you know, it was called back by the regiment. Um, but we don't know an awful lot about his time uh, during that little period. Uh, we start to see him again uh, in the early 1800s with the um, 87th, with the 1st Battalion. And then in uh, 1805, um, as part of the expansion of, of the British Army just during this period, uh, a 2nd Battalion is added to the 87th and Gough uh, transfers over to the 2nd Battalion with the rank of Major. Um, and then you have a period of a couple of years where the uh, 87th 2nd Battalion are, again, they're in garrison in Guernsey, they're in garrison in Ireland, and throughout this time they're training, they're growing, they're developing, they're becoming a serious fighting unit. And then obviously they're part of the force sent to expand the conflict in the Spanish Peninsula. Um, and here we have a situation where Goth is, is a major, but he ends up taking the battalion to Spain as its commanding officer because the two officers above him in rank in the second battalion both have other appointments. Uh, one is on as a liaison officer with the Spanish army, if I remember correctly, and the other has a role uh, in Guernsey, uh, a semi-official military role, which he can't leave. So because there are these two officers who are serving elsewhere, the command devolves upon Goff and Goff takes the battalion off to war. And how old would he have been at this point, more or less? He was about 30, I believe. Um, so that's quite impressive to essentially be commanding a battalion uh, going yeah. into combat at 30. It was. Um, you know, he must have been one of the younger. I did I did do some research looking into this at one stage, and there were, I was surprised, there were quite actually, there were younger commanders, battalion commanders, than Goff in the peninsula. Um, which was quite a surprise. And, and 30 was probably, it was almost sort of average age, I suppose. Really? Um, it is quite surprising uh, that, you know, there's some, I suppose average age is perhaps wrong because there's some very old battalion commanders, but there's some very young. So, the, the, you know, so I suppose the average comes somewhere in the middle. Um, presumably, as was the norm for his time, Goff uh, brought, brought most of his promotions. I doubt he'd seen enough action to be promoted uh, without having to buy buy, buy each successive rank. Do you, yes, do you know anything he, about he, that? He certainly bought his uh, his promotion to major. Um, and actually, there was a uh, there was an officer who um, basically left the army slightly early so that Goff could make his next move. Um, and it was done as a, it was done as a favour, really, as much as anything. Really, so. Okay. I'm technically going to go on for another couple of years, but I'll sell out now so that you can take the promotion because, and I think it's probably another one where this officer, the major in question, didn't want uh, to go on active service. Um, and was probably quite keen, you know, to, to sell out. Yeah, makes sense. And and then so the battalion gets sent to the peninsula. Uh, what what what's their track from there? Because I uh, you know I know a little bit about what happens, but not the full story. So where where do they start? 
Well, they start off, um, I mean, obviously they start off in Portugal, um, but uh, their, their first major action is at Talavera. Um, and the 87... July 1809. Yes, and it's part of the uh, uh, unit that's rather taken by surprise uh, when the French come on in attack. And actually the 87th, like the whole of their um, brigade, are actually uh, sitting down with their, you know, relaxing because they don't think the French are going to come on. And is this the, the night attack on. on the Medellin? Is it that one? Yes, that's correct, yeah. And the, the 87th, they, they suffer fairly uh, heavy casualties um, during the, the, this first little period of Calavera because it's not a... Um, it's not a particularly well organized battle in many senses. Um, you may well be aware that there's quite a bit of, or there was at the time, and there still is today to a lesser extent, a bit of controversy over whether Talavera is really a British victory or not, mm. um, because the losses are quite heavy. Uh, Wellington loses 25% of his, his army strength at, uh, at Talavera, and he actually ends up obviously having to retreat from the field. Now, I think in fairness, we have to say that even though he'd lost 25% of his strength, he didn't intend to retire. It was only when he realized Marshal Salt was coming in his direction, I think it was Salt, was coming in his direction with more men than uh, he imagined. I mean, I think there was an army of 50,000 Frenchmen coming. Uh, and, you know, Wellington didn't have the sort of force to do that, to fight that sort of uh, battle. So he started to retreat towards Portugal. There is actually an interesting little story connected with Goff in the aftermath of Talavera. He's Goff is wounded um, by a cannon shot uh, in his side and also some damage in his legs at uh, Talavera. Um, and he is one of the, <clears throat> you might know in the, in the aftermath of the battle, um, the British are going to withdraw and the Spanish the Allies are going to remain in place to sort of cover the retreat. Well, shortly after Wellington withdraws, the Spanish decide to withdraw as well. Now, this is a problem because the uh, a lot of the wounded have been taken away in wagons. Those who they couldn't get wagons for or who were considered too ill to go were left behind, knowing that the Spanish would be there and they wouldn't fall into French hands. Well, suddenly the Spanish leave and you've got, I think it's a couple of thousand British uh, wounded who are just left to the mercies of the French. Goff is one of those, but absolutely determined not to become a prisoner. He literally crawls away to the to a wood, um, not too far away, with another officer, an officer from the, uh, the Connaught Rangers, as they would become, uh, the 88th at the time. Um, and they hide out until they can recover sufficiently, and then they make their own way back on foot to the army. I mean, it's a remarkable story. I tried to find out more detail about that. It's mentioned in both the regimental histories, the regimental history of the 87th and the 88th. There's no great detail and there's no great sources or anything. It's just one of these stories that's been recorded, but nothing more than that. But I think that's, it's very much a marker to the man. You know, that's a, that's a typical goth action um that he would you know he would literally crawl away rather than be taken prisoner 
Yeah, that is that is quite an impressive feat, and and presumably then he had to 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 hike a good probably couple of hundred kilometres or whatever it must have been to get back to British lines. Yes, I mean I guess so. I mean we don't know exactly how he did get back to British lines, uh, which again would be an interesting story <laughs> to, to know. But there, there seems very little um, about this, and if Goff ever did record his own thoughts regarding this, and he wasn't a great one for writing down his own thoughts, really. Um, it would probably be in one of those papers that was destroyed in the in the fire mm. at his son-in-law's house. Um, so yeah, it, it's a shame we don't know more about it because it is just a fascinating story. But it's one of those that you know it fits the man perfectly. Yeah. So do we do we get a sense by this point of the war then that that he is a bit of a potential high flyer? Are we are we seeing signs that this is a guy who's going to be? probably one of the best battalion commanders of the campaign and will eventually go on to, you know, to achieve very high um, rank. I think, I think there's probably a case to be made for that. Part of the, the, the issue is, and there's a wider, there's a wider problem here in that obviously um, Goff is a bit of an outsider within the British army. Um, this, this happens throughout his career. Uh, he's not really one of the the smart set. You know, he doesn't have great links to the Duke of Wellington or to the Duke of York or or someone who's going to, you know, great patronage that's going to take him through. There are people who think very highly of him, like uh, Sir John Doyle, and also later on Sir Thomas Graham as well, who hides him in, holds him in extremely high regard. But these aren't really the key movers and shakers in the army. I think the fact as well that the 87th is is an excellent unit. There's an unfortunate incident um, not too long after Talavera where they, they rather get tarred with an unfair brush. Um, as you may well know, during the winter period, there's quite a lot of Ill, Ill discipline in the British Army. There's, there's a major problem with this. Now, there's nothing to suggest that the 87th is any worse than anyone else. Um, and it would seem that any ill discipline in the 87th is probably average. Now, what happens is they're in battalion with the, they're, sorry, they're in brigade with the 88th, uh, later the Connaught Rangers, as I say. Both being Irish regiments, I think they'd rather get tarred with the same brushes, you know, oh, it's, it's just the Irish being difficult. And so the yes, 88... Didn't, didn't Picton famously call them the footpads, the, the royal footpads or something like that? Yes, yes, yeah. And it, it's, a, it's a tricky one because Wellington rather takes against the 87th and by association probably golf. And I think, as far as I can make out, I would suggest that this is... A mistake on Wellington's part. It's either he's misremembered the 88th caused trouble, or no, it's the 87th. You know, because one number, they're both Irish regiments. It is easy to get them confused, yeah. even myself. And you know, um, and obviously Wellington as well had a very low opinion of the Irish, despite being part of that Anglo-Irish ascendancy himself. Um, I mean, you know, and I don't want to go off a great tangent, but just to say briefly. That's a great difference between Goth and Wellington. Wellington was an Irish-born man who wanted nothing to do with Ireland, really, in that sense. He, he sort of disowned his Irishness 
Gough was a man who very much owned his Irishness. He was very, he was extremely Irish, if I can put it that way. Um, he had a strong Irish brogue. Uh, he was a proud Irishman. He saw no conflict in the fact that he was a proud Irishman and an officer of the British Army. Um, you know, there was no conflict to Gough's eyes about that. And so Gough is a man who's very strongly Irish, whereas Wellington is a great, uh, great enemy of Ireland in many ways, I suppose. Uh, he holds it in, in very low opinion and the Irish soldier. Um, so I think there's a sense in which there's a prejudice on Wellington's part, either because they're simply Irish or because um, he's misunderstood the incident. It's the 88th, no, it's the 87th, etc. Or perhaps because they're both in brigade together. It's simply, oh, it's that brigade, a troublemaker brigade. I don't know. It's very hard to actually find too much evidence of any great ill discipline in the 87th that would make anyone think that. Um, right. So it's a bit of a mystery, but it does rather sort of, I don't want to overplay it and say it holds Goff back because I don't think it does particularly. Um, but I think it's a black mark. There's always a, it would appear to me that in Wellington's mind, there is always a black mark against Goff's name. Now, whether it's because of this or whether it's because of future actions that we'll perhaps talk about later, I don't know. But again, as I say, he is not part of, of the set of the Duke of Wellington in that sense. And yeah. This is one of the problems when you're talking in the later Anglo sequels and you've got uh, almost in sort of conflict with either Hardinge or Dalhousie. Uh, with Hardinge had served with Wellington extensively and there was a great relationship there. Dalhousie is almost sort of like a, um, an adopted son to the Duke of Wellington as well. So there's a great relationship there, which he doesn't have with Goff, which again causes problems. So I suppose to go back to your original question, yes, there is an element in which, yes, I think he's, he's certainly growing in reputation. Um, I think his reputation grows yet further in, in a few years time when we're talking about, say, um, uh, Barossa. Certainly, the Battle of Barossa, which we can go on to talk about. Um, yeah, I think I think I think I might uh, steer us in that direction shortly. And, and the siege of Tarifa as well, where Gough and the eighty seventh play a very prominent part. But again, here's part of the problem: this is all under Sir Thomas Graham's command. And Barossa, Tarifa, they all get rather overlooked to an extent because there's no Wellington. You know, there's no Wellesley, there's no Wellington. Um, it's an independent command of Sir Thomas Graham, who's actually a hugely underrated commander. I don't think he gets anywhere near the amount of, of credit he deserves. Um, later on in the conflict, as you, you're probably aware, uh, Wellington makes great use of him as a divisional commander. Um, he's one, probably one of the more able uh, junior commanders during the Peninsular War. Yeah. Well, for anyone who doesn't know, of course, Sir Thomas Graham only started soldiering in his 40s as well, didn't he? Yes, uh, exactly. After the death of his, his wife. So he's definitely a fascinating character. And, and I think that's a great point to sort of fast forward on a little bit then after his near capture uh, at Talavera to the Battle of Barossa. So presumably then, uh, and you, you may uh, uh, give any specific information, but his unit then, the 87th, gets sent down to the siege of Cadiz 
and they find themselves under Sir Thomas Graham. And and what happens next? Can you give us a quick overview and then into the into the glorious Battle of Barossa and how the 87th proved themselves? Yes. I mean, Cadiz is under siege, but it's a rather strange siege. It's a land siege, very much. But there's nothing to stop supplies going into Cadiz. There's nothing to stop troops going in and coming out because the Royal Navy commands the sea. There's no opposition to this, really, uh, at this stage. Um, there's no real major French presence around here. And so it is a bizarre siege in the sense that they're besieging them from the land, but they're not going to take uh, Cadiz anytime soon because they're not going to starve it out. So that's just not possible unless, you know, the forces of nature dramatically intervened and there were storms that didn't allow ships in for for months on end or something like that. It's not likely to happen. So really what they're doing more than anything, the French are bottling up the British presence in, in that southern part of Spain. The thing is, what it's actually doing as well is it's uh, committing an awful lot of French troops to the, to the siege, uh, which actually is detrimental to the French to an extent. Um, but there is a determination on the part of the British to break the siege of Cadiz and the idea is to basically sail out using the, the dominance at sea and land a little bit further around the coast and basically attack the French, you know, you suddenly in the rear of the French force and this is where we get the Battle of Barossa. Now they're actually doing this in cooperation with the Spanish. Um, this is the period where the Spanish are, are I'm trying to think of a polite way of putting it, uh, they're not quite sure which side they're on. Um, and I know that sounds strange and it might sound a little offensive as well. And I don't mean it in that sense. I just mean they're as suspicious of the British as they are the French. They don't quite know what game the British are playing. They need their support to fight the French, but they're equally dismissive of the, and you know, dislike the British as much as they do the French almost to some extent. Yeah, and well, you, I mean, we'd been at war with them until, what, two yeah. years before. And you've got to look at the long history as well of, you know, of Anglo-Spanish relations uh, in the centuries before. Um, we were not exactly friends. Um, and also there was the fact, obviously, we had a close relationship with Portugal, um, which, again, was largely my enemy's enemy is my friend um, throughout that period. Um, so it, it's it's a bit of a unusual one in the sense that the, the Spanish are fighting as allies and Graham is actually um, technically under Spanish command. Uh, the Spanish officer is senior um, but Graham has a degree of independence and I, and I think this I'm trying to remember exactly but he does have secret orders that basically he is allowed to act if he thinks that the British army is at risk is allowed to disobey the you know he's under spanish command but he has a degree of responsibility to look after the british army and if he feels it's at risk he can disobey the spanish command um and he does actually do that at barossa uh, to an extent and it's one of these attempts just to try and, and i'm going to do this very briefly and it's probably someone will criticize me and say i didn't, haven't got this quite right but you know the attempt is to try and force the uh, break the siege of Cadiz. They land along the coast. They move inland. 
they come across uh, a very large um, French presence uh, coming in. There's, there's a hill that has been stationed with Spanish and British troops. The Spanish unilaterally remove themselves from the hill. They fly away from the, the, the scene. They start to withdraw. Um, and Sir Thomas Graham is adamant that they're not going to withdraw. Now, there's a strange incident where there's a, uh, there's a Major Brown commanding a um, composite battalion, and it, it's made up of all sorts of, of, of different companies of, of various... Um, it was flanking companies, I think, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, well, actually, and some of it's units that have been put into garrison um, because they're the under yeah, I'm, if I can find it, I've, I've got it somewhere, I'm sure I have. Because uh... I think Blakeney of the 28th was with that battalion, as I recall, and, and has left yes. an amazing account of the battle. That's right. Let me see if I can find it, because I know... Yeah, it is the flank battalions. Um, and it's two companies of the 28th, as you say. Uh, companies from the 1st Battalion, the 9th East Norfolk, the 2nd Battalion, the 82nd, which was later the Prince of Wales Volunteers. Um, and so you've got a, an odd mixture there yeah. of, of troops. And I think this is one of those one of those periods where I think we see the strength of British infantry. And I think we see it that it's more than just a battalion esprit de corps system. You know, the, these were made up of different battalions. This was not one composite unit. This was what, not one dedicated battalion with a tradition and a discipline, etc. These were just units thrown together. They've had to withdraw from the hill because the Spanish have. Then Sir Thomas Graham rides up to Brown and says, no, I need you to go back and take the hill. And Brown famously says something along the lines, well, you know, do you want me to fight the French army single-handed? Um, and well, unfortunately, that's exactly what Sir Thomas wants him to do, um, to buy time for the rest of the British Army to come out of the, the, the woods and to, to get into line. He needs Brown to basically charge up this hill in the face of, of half the French Army. Um, and it's a remarkable thing that they go up there within the first few seconds, the first sort of volley from the enemy. They lose half their strength, both in terms of officers and men but they don't withdraw. They don't fall back. They keep going. They keep trying to push up that hill. And this is where you see something. I mean, Barossa is that battle where you see just how damn good British infantry of this period is. Now, you know, the discipline, whatever it is, there is something here, discipline tactics that make it such a, a phenomenal force. Um, and then obviously, as Brown has bought the time, the battalions start to come out. The 87th got very sensibly on the edge of the wood because the French are, are marching forward. There's artillery fire on the edge of the wood. He basically lines up his battalion. He gets it in good order so that as they emerge from the wood, they're in, they're in perfect discipline. They're in perfect order. <clears throat> you then get the famous uh, duel with the, um, with the French battalion, which I, if I remember correctly is the 8th the eighth light um, and you know they come forward um, there's a jewel of musketry which British probably slightly do better on um, and then it's 
it's the old-fashioned uh, bayonet charge by the British. Goff moves the battalion forward, bayonets to the front. They smash through the French battalion. Um, then you get the famous taking of the of the eagle. Um, By Sergeant yeah. Masterson and Ensign Keogh, wasn't it? Yes, um, Keogh obviously dies in the attempt. Uh, Masterson grabs hold of the eagle and there's that great <laughs> line, uh, Bejabers, boys, I have their cuckoo. Um, I don't know Classic. whether it's true or not. but I'd I want to get a T-shirt made with that on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and actually, interestingly, uh, later on in the battle, um, it looks like they actually capture a second eagle but the, the 87, but they're not able to hold on to it. Um, it's sort of captured and then it's lost again um, with the ferocity of the fighting. They completely destroy the 8th uh, Light French Battalion. Um, but then there's a remarkable point after that, which rather gets forgotten in the fact that in all this, you know, drama of the taking of the Eagle, of the driving off of the 8th Light Battalion, there's another French battalion on its way, turning towards them, and it's the 45th. Uh, the fact that they're coming up is, is, is made clear to him by um, Graham. Graham sends over a messenger to say, look, here they come, face them. You know, if you can imagine, you've just smashed through an enemy battalion, there's people running off all over the place, just the, the chaos that would be in that situation. Goff is able to bring together four to five hundred of his men quickly, gets them into line. Now, what would you do in those situations? Would you hold position whilst the enemy comes on and, and fire at them? Perhaps you would. Perhaps a sensible commander would do that. Goff fixed Bernard's charge. You know, he charges with just four to five hundred men, the French battalion that's coming on, relatively fresh. And they smashed through the forty, uh, the forty-fifth as well. It, it's amazing. It's an amazing example. I mean, bravery is one thing, the discipline, but also this tactical doctoring of just you know charging. And if later in his career, Goff rather gets pigeonholed for um, being a very you know charge it's fixed, attack, front-on thing. One can understand why from battles like this. He has seen British infantry drive off units of an army that has conquered most of Europe, that has been almost unbeatable to this point in, in history. And we are now seeing British infantry just smashing through them. Now, once you've seen that, you can understand why if Goff gets a mindset where he believes in the invincibility almost of British infantry. Um, and so Barossa is an important milestone, not only in the development of his career, but I think also in the development of his mindset. Um, he, again, we'll talk about this at a later date with the Anglo sequels. People sometimes ask me, does Goff underestimate the Sikhs? And I don't think he does. I reckon, I'm, you know, we'll talk later and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some evidence towards that and it shows that he actually held him in extremely high regard. So he doesn't underestimate the Sikhs, but I think he overestimates the British soldier by this point. And he just believes that no matter how good the Sikhs are, and he does think they're good, 
that British infantry will just sweep through them. When you've seen what he's done in, in, in this campaign, um, you can understand why someone would have that mindset. Um, and, and, you know, and Barossa is just one of those fascinating campaigns. And it's interesting because afterwards as well, Sir Thomas Graham, you know, when <clears throat> things go wrong, they end up back in Cadiz. Uh, Graham has won a victory, but he can't push it home because the Spanish refuse to come to the field, basically, other than the Spanish cavalry. Uh, the Spanish army doesn't really take part in the campaign at all. So we get this situation where Graham goes back and eventually Graham is, is removed from uh, command in Cadiz and promoted. And on his leaving uh, Cadiz, there are numerous requests for him to dine with this regiment or this organization or episode. He refuses all of them except the 87th. He goes and has dinner with the 87th. But I think that's an element of just how high regard he had for golf and his battalion during this period. And there's a later date in, in, in the Peninsula War where Graham is anxious to have the 87th under his command again. So, you know, um, this is a, a real key element, key period in the development of Goff's career. Brilliant. And, and so after Barossa then, and you said he was quite unpopular with Wellington, did things change? And can you give us just a brief overview of, of how the battalion and particularly Goff, how the rest of their, their campaign went in the peninsula? Well, after this period, obviously, they, they have suffered losses <clears throat> at Barossa. They're very much confined to Cadiz. They later take part in the defence of Tarifa. Um, Tarifa is one of the, uh, another, there are sort of three main ports along this area with Cadiz, Gibraltar and Tarifa. But Tarifa is the easy target for the French. You know, Gibraltar and Cadiz are hard nuts to crack. <clears throat> Tarifa has some defences, but they're very old defences. Uh, they're not theoretically going to stand up to modern artillery bombardment. Um, and so extra British troops are rushed into Tarifa, including the 87th. <clears throat> there's a siege, there's an attack on Tarifa, which the 87th play a prominent part uh, in, in forcing back. Um, you know, and again, it just adds to the, the reputation of the 87th and the reputation of Goff. You know, he's becoming well known at home. Uh, one of the few sources I did have uh, around this period, because a lot of the correspondence lost, are letters to uh, between Goff and his wife, uh, Francis Goff. Now, Francis has uh, keeps up a, a regular correspondence, and these letters still exist. And I was very kindly uh, lent them by the present Viscount Goff, uh, and allowed to look through them and, and, and you know, quote from them. And there are some remarkable things in there, and you can tell that. Francis Goff is perhaps hearing more about her husband's reputation than he is in the peninsula. You know, people are inviting Francis Goff to various events because of who her husband is. Um, and there's a growing reputation that she's experiencing rather than Hugh's experience in, in, in the peninsula. So there is a growth, but really, I suppose, in... in in Spain, he is just considered a very safe pair of hands. You know, he is a good battalion commander. I, I would argue probably the best battalion commander of the entire campaign. 
Uh, wow, that's know, a that's a that's a big claim. Yeah, and I know there are others who would support me in that claim as well. Um, you know, they're always going. To, it's one of those debates you can have. You know, who's who's the greatest footballer? Who's the greatest cricketer? Who's the greatest whatever? You're going to get numerous opinions, and there's never going to be a key answer. But I think you can make a strong case for God, which is probably the best you ever can do when you're looking at something and saying, oh, he's the best this, or he's the best that. You can put a very strong case uh, for golf and the 87. They go through the remainder of the uh, of the campaign. They're at Victoria. Uh, they're at Nivelle. Although at Nivelle, this is where golf leaves the battalion because he's quite seriously wounded. Um, and he misses the rest of Peninsula War, and by the time he's basically fit and well again, uh, the campaign, the, the war in that sense is over. Obviously, we get the hundred days a bit later on. Um, during the hundred days, the battalion under Goff's command, the second battalion, are in garrison in Guernsey. Now, I've never found a satisfactory explanation as to why they were not part of the force sent over to. Uh, to fight at Waterloo. They remain in garrison in Guernsey. Now, I mean, you can argue, or perhaps it was considered that there was a threat to Guernsey or something. I don't think there was, um, you know, with the new Napoleonic France in that sense. I don't think there really was that. And I don't understand, and I've never really found a good reason why. And they were slightly under strength, but so were many of the battalions. I was about to say most were, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't think that's really, a, you know, a reason for it either. So I've never quite understood why, but they weren't at Waterloo, the second battalion in the 87. Um, no idea why. Right. Po possibly the, the personal it. axe to grind that you'd suggested with Wellington. I can't, I can't imagine that that would be, I mean, it's a possibility. I can't imagine it would be. Simply from the point of view at that stage, I think he was desperate for anyone he could get. Uh, I think he'd have accepted any battalion. It might be, there might be something in that. I doubt it, because if he had any doubts about their discipline, if they still lingered on, one thing he knew for certain was their fighting ability. You know, he'd seen that time and time again in the Peninsula. Whatever else, Goff, uh, sorry, Wellington thought about Goff and the eighty-seven. He knew they were the people he wanted in a fight. Um, and so I can't imagine why he wouldn't have wanted them at Waterloo. Uh, th there probably is a reason, but I've not found it. Um, the regimental histories make no uh, account of it either. It just says they were in garrison in Guernsey, as if that's a justification. Um, <coughs> I don't think it is necessarily. Brilliant. Well, well, Chris, before we, before we wrap up this period, um, are there any other standout moments that you've come across from Goff and the 87th during the rest of the peninsula after Barossa? I mean, you mentioned some of the battles they were in. Are there any other standout moments that you, you found interesting or, or that shine a light on his character during that period? I mean, to, as I said, Tarifa is important. And when Tarifa is attacked by the French, um, there's a, uh, a portcullis in the old defences, which, as I should say, shows you how old the defences were, which is strongly defended by the uh, the 87th um, in in hand-to-hand -hand combat to an extent, um, and the portcullis 
actually becomes a symbol for Goff and is part of his coat of arms later on. Um, Tarifa's a campaign that, again, is completely forgotten, um, but it, it's an important one to Goff. And again, it shows his, uh, the great um, skill, I suppose, of, of leading a battalion in combat. Um, what if, whatever else we might say about Goff in his later career, there's no doubt that <clears throat> he was a great leader of men. Um, they loved him. And I think largely that was because he took the same risks they did. You know, he was never uh, backward in coming forward, as they used to say. You know, he was always with them on the front lines. He shared their hardships. He shared their dangers. Um, you know, he, throughout his career, he was wounded any number of times. Um, so, you know, he is a man who, who leads from the front, um, which is great when you're a colonel of a battalion, not so good when you're a general commanding an army. Um, and this is part of the, you know, the, the issue. Um, I always think with Goth, as he progresses up the ranks, his level of, of ability sort of goes the other way as the ranks going up. You know, he's a brilliant, he's, he's a brilliant battalion commander. He's a decent brigade or divisional commander. He's an, he's an average corps commander and he's probably an average, you know, general of a whole army as well. Um, but this peninsula campaign period, and this is why, this is one of the reasons I wanted to really concentrate on this, both in the interview, but also in the book when I wrote it. Um, Sir Robert Wright, I made mention of, um, he did a two volume history biography of Gough. The second volume is almost entirely dedicated to the Anglo Sikh Wars. The first volume, even the final chapters of that are connected with India. You know, he, he skirts over the peninsula campaign in a few chapters, probably not even that, you know, it's very quick, it's very matter of fact. That was something I wanted to sort of bring out in, in, in the book and give more of a, a feel to this, because one of the things I've always said with the book, this is not a defense of Goff. What I'm trying to do is better understand him. And I think to understand Goff, you have to understand his background and a key point of his development in terms of his military career, is the peninsula, as it would be for any soldier, but particularly because, you know, he stands out at, at Barossa, at Tarifa, you know, he really is a, a significant man leading from the front. There's a story at Barossa, which is, isn't true, but it says that he uh, engaged in a personal duel with the battalion commander of the 8th uh, and... Uh, cut his head off you know it, it isn't true because the battalion commander lived for many many years afterwards um but it's one of these things that it, this is the growing reputation of goth that these stories start developing about him um you know that that he's the guy who's who's i think there's even a painting somewhere of this or a, or a wood carving or something of him engaging in jewel and then swiping the <coughs> the colonel's head off and, and it just didn't happen um, but these sort of, you know, legends and, and things grew up around him. Yeah, um, sort of mythology grew up, which I guess is is testament to how much the men loved him. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, the 87th is a unit in which he shares a very special 
place. Um, <clears throat> when they're traveling back from uh, from India, I believe they uh, the the bump, you know at the end of his career he bumps into the eighty seventh, and he is still lauded as this great hero of the regiment. Yet none of the people in it could have could have served with him, could have known him personally. Well, you know, it's this legend of the uh, of the the history of the regiment that's passed on from generation to generation. And there's even a period <clears throat> when Goff's living in retirement in the later part of his career, and it's after the um, Second Anglo-China War. We have to take some water. No, no problem. <clears throat> and it's after the um, Second Anglo-China War when the eighty seventh returned to Ireland. Goff is there. You know, this old man retired is on the quayside to welcome the 87th home he gets a huge cheer he he insists on shaking the hand of every man of the battalion as they as they come off they're they're cheering him he's he's celebrating with them you know, these are people who probably were some of them by that stage probably weren't even born when when goff was fighting in in, in the peninsula yet there's this this legend, this history of the battalion, that every man knows who it is. You know, that apparently the story goes, they spotted him on the quayside and knew who it was, which is quite remarkable to think that, you know, of still that association. These are the days before widespread photography or, or, or media or newspapers or anything like that that would have meant they knew who he was, but the cheer went up. That's Goff on the on the quayside as the as the ship's coming in, you know this this legendary status that he had, and even it in fact still has to an extent um, within the the Royal Irish Fusiliers, the eighty seven, whatever units have come on from that, they still celebrate uh, Barossa Day in the um, the battalion that now bears the the history. Um, they Brilliant. still celebrate Goff to an extent, and it's remarkable. Remarkable indeed. Certainly a brave man and a brilliant battalion commander. But how will he fare as he steps up the ranks? In the next two episodes, we'll be looking at his service in Ireland, China and the anglo Sikh Wars. It really is fascinating stuff. Subscribe so you don't miss out, and I'll see you again soon. <laughs>